Hi, and welcome to the Lone Star Play podcast, where we sit, eat, chat, and repeat. I'm your host, Patrick Scott Armstrong, and we are coming to you from Austin, Texas. The Lone Star Play podcast is produced by Texas Real Food. Go to texasrealfood.com and you can search your city for local restaurants, stores, butchers, farmers, markets, and more who are using organic, fresh, artisanal, and local sources. It's a fun site that brings all natural options all together. All right, really excited about today's episode. Today we have Jordan Green. He is the founder for Farm Builder. Farm Builder is a consulting and teaching service for designing, implementing, and operating pasture-based livestock systems at a scale supporting full-time income. But he's also the owner, co-owner with Laura Green uh, of JNL Green Farm. It's in Edinburgh, Virginia. And they produce naturally raised 100% grass-fed beef and lamb, forest-raised pork, pastured poultry, and pastured eggs. Uh, he was also in the Marine Corps, so he is a veteran. Uh, much props to him. And uh, he was also an apprentice under Joel Salatin. So this guy knows what he's talking about. Okay, so we're going to break down the farming industry, what's happening, how this pandemic has affected the industry, um, just some of the, you know, daily struggles of being a farmer. We kind of even go into how to start a farm, some, some of the steps uh, you would take, and just some of the ins and outs of the industry. Uh, it's a really fascinating episode. Uh, I learned a lot, to be honest with you, um, and I feel you will too. It's a very informative episode. It's a little long, but I promise, stick around. It will be worth it. So sit back, grab a cup of coffee or two, and enjoy this episode. What state are you in exactly? Virginia. Virginia, right? Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. So making sure. What part of Virginia are you in? Um, are you familiar with the state at all? Yeah, I used to live in uh, Lancaster, uh, Pennsylvania, actually. Okay, so we're on the um, northwest part of the state right off of 81. Yeah. Um, so we're about 45 minutes south of Winchester. Nice. I looked a little bit at your background. So you're a first-generation farmer, and you were yeah. actually in the Marines, right? You were a veteran in the Marines. So just kind of give mm -hmm. us a little bit of history about you know, yeah, that, why, why you got into the farming, was it from the military or what, what got you into this? That was actually uh, before that. Um, so I, I grew up um, living in the outdoors uh, in upstate New York. My parents were caretakers on a big lake, I had a lot of forest around it. So I was, um, you know, outdoors all the time, fishing every day, you know, running chainsaws at 11 years old, building forts <laughs> in the woods. Nice. You know things that probably would get you locked up as a parent today. <laughs> um, but you know, it was a, it was a good way to grow up. Sure. Um, I got an interest in farming when we moved to Virginia in the late nineties and got a job at a local farm that uh, had big commercial poultry houses on it. So I worked in those, got a, a taste of, of that type of, uh, that type of work and knew I really enjoyed farming, uh, but I did not enjoy that kind of farming, you know, sure. waiting, uh, you know, hip deep in chicken manure and rats <laughs> running everywhere. And, oh, uh, that, no. That was not a fun time. Sure. Um, I got an opportunity in 2001 to go do an apprenticeship at Polyface Farm, you know, Joel Salatin's uh, farm there. And, you know, this was back before they got as big and popular as they are now. Um, so it was just two apprentices per year uh, that they were taking through at that time. Oh, wow. And, yeah. So I was there for a little over a year. And you know, learned more of the, the commercial uh, application of these pasture-based production sure. models. Sure. Um, you know, 
for a couple of years after that, did some construction jobs, uh, worked on some other farms around the East Coast, helping people implement these type of production models. And um, then in 2003, a buddy and uh, me, we went to the Marine Corps together, signed up. Um, this is something I'd been kicking around for you know, several years. And uh, the, the DOD finally changed their policy on recruiting once the war kicked off. Um, yeah. I, was a, I was a homeschool grad. So pre-Iraq war, uh, the military treated homeschoolers as dropouts. So you couldn't get a contract or. Oh, really? Anything. I didn't know yeah. that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that change, you know, amazing war has a, a way of changing policy. Sure, absolutely. Uh, that, yeah, that changed in 03. So uh, signed up. We went to boot camp in 04. And, um, you know, I did five years in the Marine Corps, uh, worked on F 18 fighter jets, which wow. is about as different from farming as you can get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That, that, yeah, you're right. But um, it was That's a good amazing. job. Got to go yeah. around the world, see a lot of cool places. Um, and you know, learn a lot of, of leadership skills that are very valuable today. Sure. Um, you learn a lot about uh, about your know, kind of mental toughness and physical resilience that you can you can go and do a lot more than you give yourself credit for if you um, just discipline yourself and, and push through. Um, those have been very valuable traits post military. Yeah. Uh, but you know, my wife and I decided in in 2007 eight time frame that 20 years in the military wasn't uh, the most fulfilling thing for me. And, you know, I'd kind of scratched that itch to serve the country and test myself and, you know, sure. see if I could see if I could hang with the big dogs and all that. Yeah, yeah. So that's when we started planning to come back to Virginia and start a farm because that, you know, that's our, our passion and, uh, you know, life's mission um, is working in this space. And uh, so that's what we did. I don't want to butcher this, uh, you know, again, no pun intended, but is this about, it's called the prime act. Is that yes. it? And yep, what, it, what, this is my understanding of it. Basically is it, it would allow farmers to directly sell to consumers. Is that more or less the gist or no? What it does is right now in most States, in order to sell meat to the consumer, you either have to take it to a USDA inspected facility if you want to sell by the piece, like what's behind here, or you can sell what's called custom exempt or custom or exempt custom. But that's where I sell you half a cow or a whole cow. And then that can be done at one of these custom facilities where there's not the requirement of a USDA inspector to be there and the more stringent regulations on it, because technically they are not butchering animals for retail sale. They are butchering the, the cow I already sold you. Got it. So the, 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 the appeal of that is there's a lot more of these custom facilities already going and available, but they cannot process by the piece for retail sale. So it would allow what he's proposing would allow guys like me to take animals to these smaller, more local, uh, more populated butcher shops to get by the piece stuff done that we then could sell either at farmer's markets or, um, you know, farm stores or where, where have you. Sure. I mean, that, I mean, in my mind, just as a consumer, that seems logical that you guys would be able to do that. I mean, yeah, well, right. you know, it's, you know, somehow uh, when it goes from, 
you buying a whole cow being processed there, that's safe. But if you want to buy a steak from me that was processed there. <laughs> right. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. That, ooh, that's getting crazy. Yeah. It's, um, it's a strange time right now. Um, and I think it, you know, and I'm sure, you know, I'm not sure your opinion on this, but this is my, my feeling of it because of, you know, the situation we're in globally, but specifically America, um, with this, you know, the lockdown and the pandemic and everything, it's brought a lot of issues, you know, bubbling up to the surface that has always been there, but not really focused on too much. And now because of what's happening, you're seeing all the problems like very clearly, you know, what, what they may have. You know, I speak specifically about restaurants, but I absolutely know that that's got to be happening with farmers, too, and their, you know, distribution line or their connection to how they get products out. Um, you know, has to be very difficult. I spoke with a, a gentleman here in Texas who runs a company called Farm to Table um, TX. You might have heard of them. They provide to all the best restaurants like in Houston, Dallas, Austin. Um, they basically, they buy directly from the farmers, you know, all of them together. And then they sell as one company to all the restaurants instead of the farmers having to reach out to everybody. And it seemed like a good system and, and they love it. They love all the farmers they work with. But as soon as this happened, it went down, you know, when it went in the drain, their whole business and they started selling, they started selling directly to consumers. I guess that's a way around that system, right? Because the they buy it from the farmer and then they're able to sell it to the consumer. Yeah, well, it, it's done at uh, the, the meats are going to ha have been processed either in a state inspected facility or a USDA facility. Okay, so that that's the same here in Texas too, right? So it wouldn't matter. Yeah, I'm not sure. Each state is kind of set up on their own on how they handle the exempted facilities. But typically, um, you have to have some kind of inspected stamp on that package of meat to sell it that makes sense i mean right that that's that's something you support right is that is that something you support having all the meats inspected like that or no um yeah i i think what is expected and implied with a stamp of inspection um you know those, those principles should be carried over to custom facilities but I don't see the need for an inspection stamp for meat to be safe. Um, you know, if you look at the, uh, the PL 9492 uh, regulations on exempted poultry, that allows uh, you know, poultry growers all over the country to harvest birds in non-inspected facilities. Um, you know, anything from something rigged up in the backyard to, you know, nicer facilities like what we have. Um, and, you know, that can be done in a clean and safe manner as well. Sure. So just because something has a stamp on it doesn't always mean it's a 100% safe product to consume. Um, there, there always That's should be, yeah. there, there should be an element of transparency in the inspection system that's currently not there. Um, and, and a way for, you know, customers to also opt out of the system. You know, if you look at guys like Joel Salatin, he takes it even a step further that he thinks there should be a food emancipation uh, proclamation that you can sign a liability waiver and you could buy milk from your neighbor and, you know, buy some pork when they have the hog killing. And I agree take, with that. Take your life in your own hands if you so dare, you know. I, I kind of agree with that, to be honest with you. I don't see... 
I don't know. It's weird. Like when I lived in Europe, I lived in Spain and they have this very much local sort of food scene in every city, right? In every little town, the food's about from what's there, the drinks, everything, you know, the alcohol, everything you're going to consume is all local and everything is from whatever. But we would buy stuff from our neighbors and this, this guy's got an olive farm. So we buy the olive oil from him We go pick it up at his apartment and we buy this from this guy and that. I don't even know if they have laws for that stuff, if we were breaking the laws, but I absolutely agree with that. You should be able to do that. I honestly, you know, yeah, I just don't see an issue with it. I mean, if you're willing to take the risk and and buy it and you you take the risk anyway, when you go to a restaurant to sit down and eat something, it's the same risk. I don't know what you're, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, And, and, you know, to me, having a connection directly with, our customers, you know, everyone who buys our product, they know exactly where it came from. It came from us. Totally. And that's going to build in accountability to the system. Whereas you have, you know, a couple hundred thousand pounds of ground beef being recalled by JBS because of E. coli contamination or something else, or, you know, people are getting sick. Um, you know, no one, no one is directly accountable for that. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. That's and a good and point. we see that happen. We see it happen over and over again, uh, pretty much every year. There's either a salmonella outbreak or E. coli or, or something um, that is causing a big health issue just because of the scale of the facilities that are handling this, that if, if you have a contamination issue, it's going to affect hundreds of thousands of pounds of product potentially. If our little small you know, facility here on the farm has a contamination issue, it's at the most going to be a few hundred pounds of meat. So the, Uh, you you can't eliminate all risk, but you can mitigate a lot of risk with small scale. Well, at the same time, like you also put the power in the business owner to say, right, if you don't do the meat right and whatever, people aren't going to buy from you, right? If you're serving whatever, whatever, people just aren't going to buy from you. I mean, that's just the market itself. It, It reminds me of the egg the difference in how we store eggs here as opposed to Europe, right? In Europe, they, they store eggs just room temperature on the shelf next to the chips, right? Like it's not a big deal. (laughs) And, uh, you know, you find out that really it's about putting the power in the farmers. Like they don't wash the eggs, so they don't need to do that or whatever. But they're basically saying if, if you don't clean the eggs and present them that way to the customer, like we're not going to force you to do it. But if you don't do that, people aren't going to buy from you anyway. Like if you have dirty eggs, nobody's going to buy from you. So we sort of leave it, they leave it to common sense, you know, in a lot of ways. Well, if you think about um, what led to the implementation of um, the FSIS and the, the more regulatory side of the USDA was the book, the jungle written by Upton Sinclair um, based on what was happening in the, the meat plants of Chicago around the turn of the, the 20th century. And, you know, it took a book and several years for the population to react enough to cause a regulatory change. Um, compare that to now, where if I'm doing something wrong as a, as a farmer and, you know, people are allowed to come onto my farm, which is something we encourage, but is prohibited on a lot of commercial farms. If I've got customers here on my farm and they're looking around and, and giving things the sniff test, if there's something that's not, uh, not kosher, man, a picture of that can go viral in, in 30 minutes. And yeah. the, the speed of information 
uh, I think helps build in a lot more accountability to a food system, but you have to have both the producer and the consumer um, engaged in their food. And yeah. that is something that, you know, a lot of people have not even thought about until now is, you know, I go to the grocery store to get my food and all of a sudden now it's, you go to the grocery store and the meat shelves are empty and there's signs around saying, you know, you're allowed one bag of rice. Yeah. And, yeah. You're you know, right. People, like, people are realizing that it, it's not um, something that's just inherently going to be there. There's actually a food chain involved. There's a lot of uh, infrastructure involved and there's, you know, ultimately at the end, there's the, the people who are running the farms that are involved. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah, absolutely. It's that chain, you know, that that's an interesting, um, something I do want to talk to you, you know, we'll segue to this. So there's this chain of sourcing that happens, right? Let's say your plate of food that you have at your dinner table. Let's, let's go backwards, right? How, you know, how many steps does it take for that piece of meat let's just say a piece of steak to end up on your plate right going through a major company right there's so many steps that it takes to to get on your plate i've i've just you know living here in texas and supporting the local food scene and the farmers here i, I think the goal here from a lot of chefs is to try to shorten that right to just right. make make that a shorter so what what do you see are problems with that like to do that like what's holding mm -hmm. that up and then what do you think can be done to get that going? Like, you know, you're, you're obviously part of it. You're, you're in the, you know, you're in the battle yourself with your own, you know, your own business like that going. Yeah. So, you know, your, your average piece of food at the grocery store, you know, I don't know. I would say it's probably been through 20 phases of, of handling by the time it gets to you. Wow. Um, That's you crazy. know, from, you know, the stockers on the shelves to the delivery guys, to the distribution center coming from, you know, probably a cold storage facility, coming from a uh, packing facility before that, and you can trace it all the way back. You know, really for what has impacted us as farmers the most is being the, the bottom man on that, uh, that rope. Yeah. Um, that, you know, I think the, the average right now is, you know, 13 cents on the dollar is what's actually going to the farmer. Um, it might be a little higher or lower for some things, but you know, the, the, the money is being made in the, the middle area sure. in fabrication and, uh, and distribution. Um, and you know, something I said in the interview I did with, with, uh, Massey there was, you know, if, if you have a business where you are setting the price for the, the raw material you're buying at wholesale, you set that price. And then you also set the price for the manufactured item going out the other end of the, the process going out to distribution of the stores. Um, why would you have any motivation to change that? You, know, you you're, you're making money on both ends and especially in uh, the meat industry, that is where it's at right now that you have a, a bottleneck um at these processing facilities or, or packers uh, for beef pork and poultry where uh me as the farmer you know, or a commodity farmer cannot access the retail market without my animal being sold to them and so you know i have to putting myself in the shoes of a commodity grower which 
We are not because we looked at this and said, hey, we don't want to play a rigged game with these guys. Um, so we, you know, we became our own middle pieces in, in the chain. Um, but, you know, if you're a commodity guy, you are having to sell a product at a price that you do not set at a time that may not be the most advantageous to you to a buyer who's going to tell you how many they're going to take. Yeah. And uh, their, their hands are really tied. And a lot of the power in controlling and manipulating the market is in the hands of these large packers who control, you know, the top four or five control 90% of the, of the market accessibility. And so that's what you see right now, especially in pork, um, you know, the, the live price being paid to hog farmers has dropped significantly while the wholesale price for the pork chops and bacon going out the other side has gone up quite a bit. Um, so the farmers oh, are getting paid less. <laughs> the, the, you know, the, the stores are charging more and uh, it's the guys in the middle who are pocketing the difference. You know, it seems that it's that way in a lot of industry. Honestly, when you started to speak, it sounded just like you, you could replace a lot of words. That's the music industry. That's what artists feel like. The record companies take all that, but they're the ones actually providing the music, right? Like the farmers are the ones actually providing the food and right. they're not getting the full thing. I think it's a lot of it sometimes has to do with branding, right? You have these companies that want to brand a piece of meat. It's like, it's just a piece of meat. You can't brand that. I can see it can have a name from the farm it came from, but it, how can right. it be a brand, right? And I think that's right. where it gets confusing. You see Tyson Chicken, uh, you know, just has the Tyson name over it, but it's not like Tyson grew, you know, they, they had nothing to do with that chicken. They just bought it from a farmer, right? So they branded, it, it's such a weird thing to me. I find that very strange. Well, the, the poultry industry is especially... Um, insidious and how they I just saw uh, super size me too uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you saw that but it's yeah yeah um, you know and I'm I'm right in the heart of, of poultry country here in Virginia there are thousands of poultry houses within a hundred miles of me oh wow. uh, and the way it works with the, the poultry industry is the, they own the birds they, so they supply the farmer with the birds, they own the feed, and then they bring in all of the, uh, the people to catch the birds when it's done. So they'll, they'll deliver the chicks to the farmer, they'll bring the, the feed, which you know, changes what type it is uh, you know, every couple days, and um, then they pay the farmer in this tournament system, as you probably saw in the film, where yeah. they're all competing against each other and for these grow out weights and all that. Uh, the only thing that the, the poultry company does not own is the debt on the poultry houses that the birds live in. Oh, of that, course. They don't want that. that. That debt is owned by the farmer. That's what he brings to the table is, you know, a couple million dollars in debt to level, you know, a big piece of land. You don't find many, um, you know, 100, 100 foot wide by 600 foot long pads perfectly level in nature. So usually you gotta, you gotta build one <laughs> yeah. and then you gotta build this building and, you know, take on this 15, 20 year mortgage that if you do not get the seventh contract or the, the seventh uh, flock of the year, you will not be profitable for that year. So you, you're working 10 months out of the year, 10 and a half months out of the year, hoping that they will give you that last uh, set. And that's where you actually make a profit on, 
your investment. And when you run the numbers, it's a horrible return Ugh. for these, these guys who are getting into the, the poultry industry. And it's telling that I've never met an old timer who was retired from it finally, who thought it was a good idea. Oh, wow. They, they all have not much good to say about it, but you know, it's the, it's the security of a small paycheck and it is, um, you know, it, it's a streamlined process where these young folks or you know, people who are getting into poultry farming, um, they can go to these uh, you know, prospect meetings that the poultry companies have, and they are given you know, a package of paperwork and saying, hey, this is what you need to take to the bank to get the money to build your poultry houses. And they take it over to the bank, they push oh, the numbers around. That's you got your, works. yeah. Okay. You got your one, two, three million dollar loan, and you've got this company over here that they they build the poultry houses, and so it's just a phone call to bring them in, build the yeah. house out, and you know you're you're a chicken farmer, and uh, that's that's how and you're locked in. If you do not um, grow birds for 15, 20 years in those houses, there's nothing else you can do with those buildings, and um, it, it's really a new uh, a new type of serfdom almost to the to these companies so the, the poultry companies to me are especially uh guilty of of saddling the farmer with debt and it sounds like there's just a few of them right like a few companies there's not very many like, um, right yeah, i would say 80 plus percent of poultry in the united states is probably produced by three companies really yeah. Dang, I knew it was a crazy. Uh, dang, that's crazy. Okay, they might have even said that in the in that documentary too. Um, God, that's crazy, right? That's a. I mean, that's a monopoly in a lot of. I mean, that's that's crazy. That's absolutely there, crazy. I'm not sure what the status of it is right now. I think there is a class action lawsuit against those companies for price manipulation um that some growers brought on i haven't looked into it for a while so i don't know if it's been settled or what's going on but um you know what is alleged is that they were essentially communicating with each other on uh, you know what's everyone's uh, what's everyone's price going to be so we don't have these growers got it from from one sure. company to the other uh, i completely believe that I, I 1000% believe that they would do that especially from the grower aspect like you know making sure that they don't get together and try to get a, a better price or whatever. I'll go to this company. I mean, I absolutely believe that they would do something like that. That's so crazy. Yeah. Uh, I would not, know. I would not put it past them. Yeah. I would not put it past them either. That, that makes a, uh, you know, if they're, if they're making business decisions already in that line, that's just another business decision, right? It's, it's protecting the, 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 the bottom dollar at the end of the day. And I, why wouldn't they do that? you want to just start a farm, right? So what, what's the first, I mean, I know there's a long list of things, but just like, what's the first thing you do when you start a farm? Is it, is it finding the land where you want to be? Is that the first step? No, I, I would say that's actually pretty far down. Really? I, I would imagine. Really? Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I would say if you are looking to start a farm, it needs to start off with a very brutal self-assessment of what are what are the skills you have right now okay um, what are what are the skills you need to acquire uh, your motivations for doing it sure. uh, i think are very important uh, and then from there you can begin to you know uh, look at 
where are your strengths, where are your deficiencies, um, you know, where do you need to, where do you need to find resources? And, you know, then you start moving into, all right, okay. um, what, what am I farming? You know, is it going to yeah. be crops or, or livestock? Because okay. if your passion is gardening, you could start a business on, you know, one acre. Sure. And you're, you're often going, but if it's livestock, then you need a lot more. Okay. Um, that, that makes sense. Yeah. What kind of capital can you bring to the table to start? Uh, you know, where are you going to market and start running down those, those, uh, more granular details of the process, but it's got to start by examining the six inches between your ears. Um, if your mind, and, <laughs> if, you know, if your mind and heart aren't in the right place, you'll, you'll fail. And sure. that's, I think a big reason that, um, agricultural startups, farm startups are, you know, somewhere in the nineties, as far as a, a failure percentile. Really? Uh, but, Holy yeah. cow. That's worse than restaurant. I thought restaurants had a bad yeah. Uh, you know, success rate. Wow. That is crazy. Is it because that's such a, first of all, that's just such a great way to look at things. Um, to just even start there, you know, mentally, where are you at before you even go? I, I love that. You know, that, that should be with anything in life, right? Um, no matter sure. what project you're going to get going, um, you know, assess yourself that way. Um, so do you think that that's the reason, the big reason for that high, high failure rate is, is because people don't even start with the first step. They don't, they don't even start there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think a lot of people are drawn to an agricultural, uh, lifestyle or business from the, the romantic notion side okay. of it that they, I see. they've read the books, they've watched the YouTube channels, they follow certain people on Instagram and, uh, you know, they see, they see the the good side of it, and there's certainly sure. a lot. Of, there's a, there's a lot of good to it. There's a lot of you know being in nature and having wonderful experiences, and all of that is true. But what you don't see is you know, hey, you got to go out and secure something that's blowing away at one o'clock in the morning when a hurricane is going through. Oh my god! Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, you're out there in 80 mile an hour winds. Rain is driving <laughs> horizontal. And, you know, that's when you're going to question your life choices. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think uh, a lot of people get to that point and they're just like, you know what, this isn't for me. And unfortunately, that usually corresponds with the, the bottom of the, uh, the, the business trough that sure. they've already expended the capital um, and spent the time. And they're just getting to the point where they might start to get some traction and start doing something but they're mentally and emotionally shot and they just throw in the towel. Sure. Yeah. That honestly has a lot of similarities to, you know, things I've seen in the restaurant industry of people starting a food truck or a restaurant, same sort of thing, not seeing what it's actually going to be. And then when that moment happens, they're like, Whoa, what did I get myself into? You know, I didn't realize right. it was going to be like this. And then inevitably once your passion is gone and you're, once you're mentally not in the game, the business just starts to go down, yeah. you know? Yeah. If you're not ready to pour a hundred hours a week and make $10,000 your first year, you know, for your, for yourself personally. Yeah. Um, if you're not ready to do that mentally, um, you know, not saying you will have to do that necessarily, but if you're not ready for that, then you are going to have a very bitter pill to swallow after sure. you're already in, you know, after you're already involved. Yeah. Um, and that's why I really emphasize the mental side of it that, 
you know, if, if you're not mentally in the game to do it for a sustained period of time, it doesn't matter how much money you can bring to it, you know, what farm you have, what market you have, um, you're, you're not going to cheat the process. Sure. And, um, it's, it's going to, it's going to take a toll on you and you got to be ready for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. It, you know, the, they say the saying is what the, the road is paved with good intentions, right? So they, they all, they all start with, uh, you know, sure. they, oh, seeing, yeah. the, the, seeing the romantic side of things, like you said, oh, we're right. going to help the environment and we're going to sustainability. We're going to provide for ourselves and other people. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, and it's, it's, it's commendable. Right. But then, you know, they get it started. It's almost like, rescuing a dog from the shelter you're all excited about it and then you give it up a year later because you right. weren't ready for that commitment yeah and mm -hmm. those things will come um you know if you stick through it you figure out how to make the business work what production models work you find a market all of that will start clicking eventually but you have to be willing to wait five seven years for that to happen uh, you know or for us we're here at year 11 and um, oh wow you know, it's, it's amazing to see the speed at, uh, the speed and scale at which things can happen with the inertia that we have of 11 years of grinding it out that, you know, from, uh, February to now our business has almost tripled in size because yeah. of, you know, the, the crisis and everything that's going on, but we had the fundamentals locked in and we were able to scale it out incredibly fast uh, much faster than any startup could could uh, imagine because we've worked out a lot of the kinks on on the scale side and we were able to do it and we we're able to hire more people and collaborate with other farms that lost their businesses and uh, uh, well that lost their their market yeah um, to bring in product that is uh, grown in a similar production model to ours so it meets our integrity standards and, you know, it, it's a good feeling to know that, hey, not only are we being successful, but we're also helping save other farms and we are employing people who are out of work. And we're able to do all these things with this business that, you know, is going to benefit the community. But we had to do the 10 years to, to get to this point with it. Sure. Of course. Yeah. You, you got to put in a lot of work. Um, I mean, it's not an easy business, right? I mean, you're, you're literally in the nitty gritty of things. It's, it's not an easy business to get into. If you don't have an absolute love and passion for it, right? It's just not going to, it's just not going to happen. Um, let me ask you about the current state of things like you've had to obviously I'm sure make some pivots, you know, friends of yours, I'm sure own farms, right? I'm sure that's, you're, you're, you're completely involved in this. Like what, what are you seeing? What are the issues you're seeing farmers are having? Um, you know, some of the biggest issues you see them, them having right now with, with everything. Well, certainly uh, th there's a huge polarity in what's happening based on the type of farm that you are. Um, commodity farms, especially on the produce and meat side, are uh, you know experiencing some truly horrendous things right now. That you know you've probably seen it in the news about these depopulations of of hogs and poultry. Yeah. Um, that you know the, the it's basically an overproduction and a inability to move them through processing. Uh, so so they just have nowhere to go. Yeah, they got nowhere to go. They just have nowhere to go. Yeah, the, the uh, so I'm pulling this number off the top of my head, but it's probably pretty close. They have to process uh, two 
something like 2 million pigs a day in order to keep the wheels moving smoothly. It might even be 2.7 million. Um, it's roughly uh, 2.8 billion pounds per month of pork is pushed through these processing plants. And if they do not process that much, the, the pipeline's coming. And um, just read an article earlier today that uh, you know, the, the hog industry especially, I think, got trapped in a, a pincer of kind of their own greed and anticipation of the trade deal with China. And then the, um, on the other side, the effects that uh, coronavirus is having on their ability to process. So they were, they were already running at 100%. Nine percent growth in the pork industry just in the first quarter of this year. Oh wow! Um, And all of a sudden, you know, thirty percent of their processing capability is offline. Well, that's a hundred thousand pigs a day, and they they got to go somewhere. And for a little while, they can stack them up in the barns, but then you you're backing up to your nursery operations and your piglet farms, and now they've got nowhere to put the piglets. And so. You know, what's happening right now here in the first week of May is you have farrowing farms that are giving their sows uh, shots to cause abortions. So they will abort the litter. Um, You have some piglet depopulations going on where they're just killing piglets Um, all the way up to finishing farms where, uh, you know, JBS opened up uh, one of their shutdown plants last week just to kill pigs. And so they're bringing in tractor trailers of of fat pigs ready for slaughter. They're killing them, throwing them on a dump truck, taking them to the landfill. I was um, just going to ask what they do with them. So they just take them to a landfill. Just, yep. It, yep. It, this is crazy. so, you know, for, and it's not going to stop. Right. I mean, right now, why, why would it stop any day now? Right. You, what, what would, you, what's you can't gonna... stop it. Yeah. You, you can't stop it un- until these plants are back online, which even when they open back up, that doesn't mean they're at capacity. It's going to take a long time to, uh, you know, the, the Titanic does not turn easily. So <laughs> when you say long time, do you think, you know, a couple months, months. or a couple years? Uh, well, I, you know, I'm not an industry guy, so I don't sure. want to speak out of, out of uh, ignorance here. But I would imagine it's going to take months to get the plants back up to speed. And then it's going to take years for the, the farm side of it to just recover Got from it. everything that, that went on. Um, that you know if you are uh, not breeding pigs right now you are affecting pigs a year from now so i see see what you're saying every every day that a sow farm does not rebreed those sows that is affecting pork 10 12 months down the road i see what you're oh my god is this happening with all all you know all livestock uh, that's sold for slaughter, and is it happening with produce and fruits as well? Like, is this what's happening? It's it's especially prevalent right now with pork and poultry. Um, they're beginning to gas a lot of poultry houses here on the East Coast. I think Delaware killed a couple million last week. They gas um, them? Oh. Well, it, it's like a foam that they spray in the houses. That, ah. um, yeah, this is so hard for me is just a, you know... Oh normal, yeah, normal yeah. dude sitting in my house, just like I yeah, don't work on a farm. You know, this is oh god. It's a it's an oxygen displacing foam, basically. Oof. They pump the house full of, and it kills the birds in ten fifteen minutes. And oh, um, that sounds horrific. Yeah. It, it's nothing pretty to see. Yeah, um, that but, that it, it sounds like the worst rave foam party on the planet. They die. They die right. afterwards. I mean, it's like. Yeah. 
Yeah, that it kills you. That kills um, you. Oh, Jesus. You know, I think, I think with beef, they are not at the point of depopulating because cows you can just put out in the pasture. And oh, you know, I, I see. I think they're trying to – it's certainly causing disruption on the market of beef and the price that they're getting. And, you know, it's starting to stack up behind, but it's not causing an issue where they're like, well, go get your – 1911 45 ACP and you know we're going to go to work um killing animals so but pro produce uh from what i've seen is just as hard hit right now because they you know uh, the the majority of food that's produced in the united states is produced for institutional buyers it's not produced for retail sale it's meant to be bought by mcdonald's and wendy's and Oh, um, I see what you're saying. You know, okay. Outback and yeah. uh, all these restaurants. And so all of a sudden they all shut down and there's no one, you know, there's no buyer looking to buy, uh, you know, the big onions to make blooming onions anymore. Sure. And, uh, you know, produce especially is a very short shelf life. And so a lot of those crops are just getting plowed under and left in the field to rot or thrown away or, or what have you. So it's, it's devastating for, pretty much any farmer that is engaged into the commodity system right now. Yeah. On the other side, every farmer I've talked to that has a direct to retail outlet, this is the biggest economic boom of their lifetime happening right now. Oh, wow. Uh, I mean, it is, yeah. And I, and I talked to a lot of farmers all over the country and every one of them is, uh, you know, <laughs> It's a, it's a tough place to be in right now because you want to just dance a jig and rejoice that your sales have tripled and you know, all of a sudden you're, you're everyone's favorite farmer and they're calling you and you know, sending you cards and just loving on you and uh, kind of the moment to shine. But it's a very dark cloud that brought, sure. that brought the, the silver lining. So sure. uh, you know, for us, we're just glad that we're in a position to help the community. Yeah, that's good farmers. to hear that's hopeful to hear yeah. honestly um I, I wasn't expecting that answer to be to be frank with you i was not expecting that answer so that actually gives me a lot of hope yeah um, so you know our, our hope is that this is the kind of rebirth of the local food movement you know like uh, i had it say 10 15 years ago yes yes um you know we hope that that people see it now that hey it is important to be able to call up a farmer and say hey can i get some beef from you um, you know, instead of just going to the store and it not being there uh, because of decisions that were made by big corporations or politicians that you have no influence or control over. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a, a two-edged sword for us right now that, you know, we're, we're in one of the biggest uh, expansions of our farm that's kind of universal with other farms that are direct to retail, but it's also at a time when there's a lot of uh, desperation you know, out there in the public. Sure. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's a tough time for everybody, right? That's the one thing about this particular issue is that no matter who you speak to, they're going through this. And that's, what's very unusual about this. Cause usually something happens, it affects a particular region or state or city or what, whatever it may be another country. Uh, right. You know, this is something that's absolutely crazy affecting every industry. And, you know, look, some people are coming out on top of this. There's always opportunities in, in times like these. Um, it is what it is. I'm, I'm actually happy to hear about the farmers coming through on this. And I hope it, my hope is that it stays, right? That it sticks yeah. 
what what do you what steps can consumers like myself you know people like me what can we do to help make this stick <laughs> oh excuse me um, well, the, the most important thing would be to stick around after it's over. Just keep um, buying, right? Keep calling, yeah. keep buying, keep, okay. Yeah, you know, especially with meat, um, you know, if, if I want to uh, birth more cows to have steak, that's a 30-month decision. You know, I, I don't have that steak till 30 months from the decision to breed that, that mama cow. Yeah. Um, with a pig, it's a year. Um, the shortest one would be chicken and that is about, you know, eight weeks for the chicken to grow out, but it's another four that it's in the incubator. So it's really about a 12, 15 week decision cycle on those. And, you know, that's kind of the thing that we're most concerned about right now is we're doing all of this ramping up of infrastructure and, you know, new people and all this other stuff that we need to, to grow more, but will the demand melt away as fast as it exploded? And that, that's kind of the unknown. Um, and, you know, for us, it's about being very flexible, um, having a finger on the pulse of what the market is doing, but then also showing, you know, look, this is the greatest uh, opportunity that has ever come along, you know, when you look at it from a marketing opportunity that, yeah. that customers are literally you know climbing out of their cars and standing <laughs> in line, you know, lining up cars down the road i've seen it you know at some farms um you know this is a huge opportunity to show the public what you know our farm is about or for other farms what sure. their farm is all about and actually do the do the work of what it takes to keep a customer because we can't compete yes. with walmart or you know uh, HEB down there in Texas, you know, these other big chains, we can't compete with them on price, but what we can beat them on is customer service and the quality of the product. Yeah. And so the task from a marketing side right now is to really emphasize on that relationship with each customer, um, to help meet their needs and to show them this is a high quality product. Um, our customer service is going to be fantastic. And if 50% of them stick around when all this is over, uh, you know, that, that is, a huge success, I would say. That's probably a pretty good guess, actually. You know, one out of every two people would want to stick. Some people just, you know, like shopping at the grocery store that they shop at, right? Because it's right down the sure. street from them. They make with a the one trip. They go. What? Let me ask you this. What do you say to that person that's like, look, I, I work two jobs, right? I, I don't have time to do all this stuff. So I just want to go to the grocery store and one trip, I... You know, I can get every all my meats there and it's cheaper. Why should I pay more? You know, what, what do you say to somebody like that? Well, you know, for me personally, I gauge my responses kind of on the individual person. You know, if sure. it's a more nuanced, technical and detailed person, then we'll have that discussion. A genuine, you know, just someone genuinely like, why, why should I buy from you and not just buy from, you know, the store? Because it's cheaper. Now, they're only thinking about price, mind you. That's all they're thinking about, price. Right. Um, frankly, if someone is shopping only on price, I'm not going to try to talk them out of it. You know, I will say, hey, you know, you know, you're you're a working mom. You've got six kids. You know, that yeah. are all, you know, uh, teenage boys, and they're a bunch of carnivore savages. And, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's going to be very expensive to buy all your meat from us. 
Um, but you know, what I would say in a, in a more general sense is like, look at what's going on right now that the reason you can't get a steak at the store right now, or you're limited to one or two packages of ground beef is because of the consolidation that has happened in this industry over the last 60 to 80 years. Um, you know, because of the loss of small and local butcher shops and processing centers. So, you know what, a, a steak that you can't buy has no price on it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's yeah. So you, uh, if you are, if you're starving, you're going to pay whatever you got, but what will help us as farmers bring our costs down and being more competitive with what at, is at um, the store is a regulatory play uh, leveling of the field. You know, right now it costs Smithfield, who is one of the biggest hog producers in the world. Uh, it costs them about $16 to process a pig, to take it from standing there with four hooves to packages of pork chops and bacon going out. Really? $16? That's it? That seems yeah. super low. It cost me over 300. Oh, so, what a despair. The, what, what a Jesus. Yeah. The, the, the first dollar 25 of any price you see here on this shelf, that doesn't go to us. That's going to the facility that put it in the plastic package. And so, you know, wow. what you saw in the video I did with Massey talking about the prime act, um, you know, if, if we can affect regulatory change and emphasizing more local processors, that will immediately have a 30, 50% effect on this price disparity between what you see at the store and what we have to charge here on the farm. Um, I also think there has to be a very, a very frank and honest discussion as a, as a society and as a culture of the cost of the cheap food that we have. You know, we spend, um, I think it's 9% of our disposable income on food, which is amongst the lowest in the world, but that is offset by an incredible amount of government subsidy and costs being hidden elsewhere in the market. Um, you know, a, a spot study I saw a couple of years ago looked at one Walmart location in a specific place. So, you know, it might be different in other locations, but the employee base of this one Walmart also received uh, almost a million dollars a year in food stamps. And so, holy cow. You know, you don't think about it, but that that is offsetting the price of food. That if the employees of the supermarket are also being subsidized by the taxpayer on their income, uh, you know that allows everything in the store to be cheaper because now the store doesn't have to pay their employees sure. a fair, you know, a full and fair wage yeah. that would cover their their household expenses. So we have so many different ways right now that the cost of food is pushed elsewhere. And it's hidden around in different areas that we just need to have an honest cultural and societal discussion at what does our food actually cost and what is the most honest way to assess that and represent it in the price um, on the shelf. And so for us, you know, we don't do subsidies from the USDA. We don't uh, participate in a lot of those programs. We try to have the price of our product here represent the cost of what it took for us to produce it. Um, for us to pay the people who work here, you know, a, a livable wage for us to pay the people that we're buying our cows from a fair price for their stuff and the grain and, you know, all this other things to try to have a, a holistic symbiotic approach to this production model. And 
at the end of the day, it will necessitate a higher price per pound. There's just really no way around it. And, you know, coming back to that customer, that's where I would really address it from. Look, if, <clears throat> do you want to be a part in helping solve this problem or perpetuating it? Because if you want to be part of the solution, support someone like us, support some other you know, local farm that's doing it right. Uh, and that is what will begin to decrease prices and begin to uh, solve this problem or just keep buying 49 cent a pound chicken. Some people have to, I, help, I do not hold that against them at all. But if you can, we need eaters to participate in the solution as much as we need producers to. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, you need the demand there, right? To create the market. Otherwise, yeah. what, what, you know, what's the point? So how, how do, how does the system survive moving forward that allows everyone to get a piece of the pie, including the big producers, because they're not going to go anywhere, right? Like that, that's not like they're going to disappear or anything. So in order to keep the farms happy and the big producers happy, what, what could happen? What, you know, because people are still going to buy, you know, meat at Walmart, but still, sure. but people are still going to buy meat, you know, from directly from farms. Like how, I guess, how, yeah, how does that happen? How does the system keep together, really? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, <clears throat> that's a, a deep topic to dive into. Yeah, uh, yeah, it probably really. really brings, you know, a lot of uh, economic uh, philosophy to the table on and um, you know, levels of free market capitalism versus, you know, more socialized systems. Um, you know, I would, I would say things that could be done right away that would help immensely is let's stop play, picking winners and losers at the federal level with how subsidies are distributed and different industries are kind of propped up and then pitted against each other. Um, it makes no sense to me why we burn one uh, one calorie of petroleum fuel to produce one calorie of ethanol fuel. Yeah, that's only done. I see. That's only that's only done to prop up the corn lobby yeah. who want you know their farmers to grow more corn. Well, that actually doesn't end up helping anybody at the end of the day, and it doesn't help the environment either. Yeah. Um, you know something that has that has really uh, blown my mind for a long time is why are we importing so much of our agricultural goods? Um, and you know, you can dig deep into the, the philosophy of, um, you know, mutually assured economic destruction that was formulated after world war two as a way to tie the economies of the world together so that there would sure. never be a war again. Sure. Um, so, you know, that's, that's the reason, uh, you know, we buy a lot of beef from Brazil and then we send a lot of beef to Brazil or, you know, we do that with Mexico or you do it with other countries is to foster this economic uh, web. But, you know, it, it doesn't work to me just as a, a lay guy looking at it here. Yeah, there's no way that a farm here in Virginia paying, uh, you know, workers' compensation and land taxes and personal property taxes and you know fuel tax, all of these taxes that we have to pay here, there, there's no way that we can compete with beef that's grown in a third world country. Um, and you know, it's being produced on land that's, rel that's a lot cheaper than here sure. with labor that's a lot cheaper. 
yeah. and with uh, you know governments of of questionable uh, integrity yeah. who could be bought, you know bought off by different entities, um, it, it's impossible for there to be a a parity between between the two uh, opposing uh, business forces here. So yeah, I think what would help a lot of especially meat producers uh, in the United States is to to stop being forced to compete with a low cost producer in another country who doesn't have to play by the rules we have to play by. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Honestly, it sounds like the power is in the consumer's hand. It sounds like we have all the power in the sense that if we stop buying from a certain place and only buy from one, that will directly affect the market, right? And create that new demand from other people, right? From farmers. It sounds like it's really just in the power of us, of where we go spend our money, you know? Well, yeah, ultimately, yes. And, you know, I like solutions that start at the individual level that, you yeah. know, we can, you know, we can sit here and, and piss and moan about bureaucrats in DC and, you know, what the government's doing all day long. But if we're still going down and, you know, buying the cheapest stuff we can that's being imported from who knows where. Totally. Well, you know, talk is cheap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just cr cruise social media for a little while and you'll see a lot of, uh, a lot of free talk. Yeah. But actually putting <laughs> dollars into action uh, requires some real buy-in from people. And yeah, I think that's where it's got to start is as many people as possible you know, taking that responsibility for themselves, which is such a, a, you know, a novel uh, concept in this day and age. Sure. That, you know, you're, you'll take responsibility for yourself and the food that you eat and the, you know, the, the health that you maintain and all that. Um, if enough people do that, that begins to turn a tide. And you know, that's when politicians begin to take notice. And that's when policy begins to change is when there's enough people telling those guys, hey, you need to do this and, uh, you know, break up this, uh, you know, business cartel or, or monopoly or else we're not going to vote for you anymore. And yeah, it, it seems to me that we are, we have a real uphill battle on that front because of the entrenchment that sure. a lot of, you know, corporate money. There's lobbyists. Lobby yeah. Totally. And politicians. Exactly. It's, Exactly. Uh, yeah, I, I made it. I made a joke that you know uh, DC lobbyists, regulators, and uh, in industry uh, executives all drink out of the same coffee pot every morning. You know, they're, yeah. they're, all, they're right next to each other. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, uh, you, know, you had you had uh, the last uh, Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack. Um, he was, I think, the governor of Iowa before that, and you know he became the Secretary of Ag for the Obama administration. And then when he left that, he went directly to work for one of the biggest dairy lobbies in the country. And oh, wow. So, and that's, that's very common. I mean, you, you see that in the tobacco industry, too. You see the same sort yeah. of, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's, God, the, it's the foxes and the hens are interchangeable. It's so crazy, right? You don't know who it's like when uh, cigarette companies provide studies against smoking, right? They, they fund these weird the beef, beef industry does that too. I heard like they'll fund these weird studies. Like I, I think they might even be required to by law, a certain extent do certain things. I don't know. It just seems so weird sometimes, you know, some of that information, but look to me, yeah. Jordan, the good news, it sounds like that a lot of the power again is with, you know, my dollar, 
you know, and what sure. I'm going to do with it. And, and I think what, what happens is a lot of people, they get confused on where to get this food from. Because here's what I think is a big problem, too, is that people like the term organic, right? And they, if they go to HEB, let's say, you know, right, we're here in Austin, we, we go to HEB and I go buy food, meat, and I pick organic. In my mind, I think I'm helping a local farm, right? That's what people think here. That, that's right. the idea. I'm helping. If I'm buying organic, I'm helping local farms. Like I'm helping farm. I'm doing the right thing. Is right. that the right thing? Or I don't think people know how to connect with farms really. And I don't think farmers right. know how to connect with, with the consumer entirely in a, in a good right. way, especially if you've got so many farmers all trying to hit this one person. That's why people love grocery stores, right? Because it brings everything to one right place and so yeah how do we get around this right like yeah well i mean there's a joke that you know there's a reason that the majority of farmers are farmers it's because they prefer the company of john deers and uh, cows to people <laughs> and uh, i get that completely i get it yeah there's certainly a lot of work to be done from our our side of the table um that the, the the line of communication and connection with the eater was lost a while ago um and you know that was that was surrendered when you know these companies came along and said hey you know you don't have to worry about anything we'll buy all the cows you produce we'll buy all the milk um you know we'll handle all of that you just do your thing and it worked out it, it worked out well for farms for quite a while um but you know it is where it is now, and we have work to do as farmers to to kind of recapture that connection. Um, but you know, on the organics thing, you know, organic all that means is an adherence to a certain production protocol. Totally, okay. I mean, a hundred percent, right? Yeah. Like those I terms. Mean, I can, I can probably go buy certified organic stuff from California, um, you know, here in Virginia, and that really doesn't help that farmer any more than if he was growing you know commercial commodity type of stuff i see what um, you're saying yeah it's just it's an additional certification that he's paying extra to get and, because it's uh, a it's a it's a you know a term like right like a term that jumps off the shelf at people when they see right. it they think yeah. again it makes you feel like you're doing the right thing i'm buying organic i'm eating the right way i'm helping farmers right. that that's literally what people attest it to but it's really right. not well, it, it is indicative of our culture that looks for the catchphrase. Yes. Yeah, you know, exactly. You, you look no further than politics this last time around. It was, you know, you were either MAGA or you were with her. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. The majority of people probably couldn't tell you one thing about either candidate's actual political philosophy or, you know, platforms or planks of the party or sure. all that. Um, so, you know, it's... We, we, are, we are so busy with our lives that if someone else presents us with a, a shiny label, yep, that's good enough. We'll take it. Yeah, we'll take it. And, packaging, um, right? It's about the packaging. Yeah. And there, uh, there are incredible amounts of money spent on marketing agencies to figure out you know, font style, uh, lettering, yeah, you're color. Right. Yep. You know, yep. A... a, a poultry company here in the Shenandoah Valley that, uh, you know, is trying to capture the organic uh, chicken market. Uh, they are using the same type of houses that the industry is using the same, you know, birds, 
Um, their processing facility was one that they bought, you know, that, that had gone under from the, the industry. Really not a whole lot of difference in their production model from a product standpoint, a little bit different on how it's set up from the business side for the individual farmers. Um, and <clears throat> I watched with interest over the last couple of years, they went through one of these, uh, you know, marketing agency transformations, how they went from, <laughs> you know, kind of a generic logo and, yeah. you know, a, a title to something a lot more uh, nostalgic. And, sure. you know, it's a, the farmer walking, holding the basket with the, the kid along. Oh, gosh. It's now, uh, you know, it's now farmer focused. And, uh, you know, that's all marketing. It's, it's totally. all done just to capture the customer. And so, as with anything, um, if, if, if we as a consumer, you, you and I as a consumer, if we care about something, you got to do the legwork on digging yeah. into it. Yeah. Um, yeah. See what's really going on behind the, behind the label, behind the website. Um, you know, if, you, if you want to know where your food is coming from, you've got to dig into it and you got to take that responsibility for yourselves or don't be surprised with whatever comes down the, the road when you buy organic and then you suddenly learn that it's, you know, <laughs> those organic strawberries are actually grown in Mexico and fertilized with human manure. Cause you know, to that's totally, that's organic. So yeah. To yeah. That's a, yeah, that's really organic. Absolutely. Yeah. But this is what yeah. people want. You know, I honestly, I think the best thing the farming industry could do would be, Yes, you want people to appreciate, you know, where the food's coming from and, and educate them and want to go. But look, the majority of Americans are stupid and we don't want to learn a lot of this stuff. We don't even have the time maybe in our lives to take that time to learn about the food. I almost think it just needs to happen without them knowing, you know, they just when they buy it, they don't even know they're supporting a farmer. If that makes sense, they're just they buy it. It's part of their thing. You almost don't need them to accept that to get, to to lift the farming industry up. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's like getting a kid to eat his vegetables. He doesn't really know, understand the reasoning behind it. He just knows he needs to do it and it's good for him and just get him down or whatever. I almost feel like that's the majority of consumers. They're not going to care where the food comes from or if it's uh, sustainable or whatever the terms you want to use, right? They, they could care less. It's going to come down to price for them and convenience, you know? And the, if, if a, to me, if the farming industry can figure that out, and I know price is a tough one, maybe getting people to accept lower portions, right? The quality over quantity is a big thing too. I think getting people to understand sure. that, um, but really, I think, again, just getting people that they buy it and don't even know they're supporting, right? They, they just don't even know. I, I think it's just getting people to, again, know where to get it from and know how to make that connection. I just think most people just don't just have no clue how, how to go about that. You know? Yeah. The problem, you know, when you basically what you're I think you're getting at is having uh, you know, central authority make decisions. And you know, the, the problem that happens once you, you know, pull the ring of Sauron out is that <laughs> you, know, you don't want to put that power away. Sure. And, you know, we, we've seen what, where we are right now was created by the government picking winners and losers. And so is it going to change much if we just change who the winners and change who the losers are? Yeah. Uh, you know, my take on it would be, 
let's just move government as far out of this picture as possible and put everybody on a level playing field, you know, prevent, um, prevent companies from cornering 80% of the market. For yeah, something. I agree. I a hundred, I mean, hundred percent agree yeah. with that. And then be owned. These companies are owned by capital interests outside of the country and, you know, nothing against other countries. I've, I've been to a lot of other countries and there's things about them that I love and people that I love. And, uh, but you know, they're what, what is the priority in their mind is not the best interest of Americans. Yeah, sure. I can tell you that. Oh, of course. And it, and it shouldn't be. Yeah. They, why, they yeah. Be. Why would it be? Yeah. Why would it be? And why would ours be somebody else's? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I would say let's start off with leveling the playing field, um, loosen up regulation, stop picking winners and losers at the federal level, you know, break up these, uh, you know, monopolies that are, that are strangleholding the, the processing pipeline and, you know, see what happens there. And you know, I think there's always going to be a percentage of people who don't care that they're going to eat. You know, yes, just, just that's, <laughs> that's, the, that's the majority. I mean, I hate to say it. I mean, I hate, I'm not trying to be a downer, but that's just a lot of people that I know are like that. They, they, they are never going to care. That's just yeah. the gist. It doesn't matter what you show them, what documentary, what stats, take them to as many farms as you want, show them as many videos. Right. They're not going to give two craps. They just want to drink on the weekends and party. And again, that's why it's almost like we just have to slip it in there. It's like you're buying far you're supporting farmers. You don't even know it. Great. They, they, they you know, I don't know. Well, if we stop, if, if we stop picking winners and losers, a lot of that will start to fix itself that, you know, all of a sudden uh, soda will be a lot more expensive because sugar is no longer offset with subsidies and, you know, made, made to be the, the cheapest commodity out there. Yeah. Um, you, you would think twice if the, the, uh, you know, two liters of soda was five bucks instead of 99 cents. I agree with that. Yeah. You, know, you might think twice about, um, you know, a. Uh, 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 hamburger from XYZ food, uh, you know, uh, fast food place, if it was twice as expensive, because now they are having to pay, you know, a, a fair wage to their workers. And they're also having to pay the cost of the, uh, the, the footprint of their business. You know, I was just going to ask you about that. Like, do you think if fast food places, cause I just, you know, coming from the restaurant industry, I'm not a big fan of the typical fast food place. Uh, not to say that I don't have never eaten at them. I do. And, uh, you know, I'm ashamed. Sure. I'm ashamed. I'm usually in a hoodie in the corner parking lot, downing a Big Mac. <laughs> like, I hope nobody sees me because I talk, you know, I come from food and I shouldn't be eating this, but I get it. It happens. You, you do it here sure. and there. Sure. Um, but do you think if those companies were, because like you said, they, they're the ones you know, like all the produce and all the, what it's, it's going to a lot of these businesses. So do you think if they were the ones to start making the change as that's how it would happen again, you go to McDonald's and you buy a big Mac, you know, if we just slid in actual good stuff, that's good for you, right? Good meat in there. And you, you ate it the same. Could, could we do that? Right? Like, is that possible? I guess the price difference is really what would be Right. That's what would be the shock factor, maybe. Um, you know, price plays a part. I, I think education is a big part of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, the, so reeling it all the way back to us as farmers here, you know, we grow and sell thousands of chickens every year on the farm. Um, 
are the easiest thing for us to to butcher and sell is a whole chicken. You know, it's not cut up. It's just the whole bird. It's been processed. It's it's you know a roasting chicken. Yeah. But people don't want whole chickens. They want pieces of chickens. And yeah. So our challenge then is we have the extra cost of of doing that, which is fine. But then we have this different. You know, we have all these different pieces in the freezer. And you know, what do you think is the chicken cut everyone wants? The breast. Yes, a hundred percent. And so in order for us to have a smooth inventory flow, chicken breast has to be twelve dollars a pound and chicken wings have to be three. Oh my in order gosh. For, in order for the inventory to flow smoothly. Sure. Now for the same amount of money someone pays for a pound and a half of chicken breast, they could buy the whole bird that came that the breast came off of too. <laughs> I love that. So you know, that, that part is education for people to say, Hey, and we've done this on our farm. We've had how to cut up a chicken class. Yeah. It literally takes two minutes with, with any decent knife skills Yeah, and you have the breast and now you have the thighs and the drumsticks and the wings and you've got the back that you could cook down for soup. So you could take for the same money, you could now have, you know, uh, three, four times as many portions or meals as you would just have for buying the breast, but eaters are so conditioned to just wanting boneless, skinless breast um, that they're willing to pay whatever it takes just to have that instead of educating themselves a little bit on how to break down the whole bird. I mean, so you're that, 100% right. You know, that I think is the, the consumer side of it um, that you know, we can help as farmers, but also just more of our education system and our, our food literacy that's a great point yeah hey food can be cheap if you buy potatoes by the 20 pound bag or you know you buy you buy onions by 10 pound lots or you know you buy tomatoes whole and can them yourselves or you buy a whole chicken or you know that's a good point yeah Uh, you know you're you mentioned earlier you know about convenience and price you know i've noticed it's a very um consistent correlation that the market will tolerate a higher price the closer a product is in convenience to consumption. Absolutely, so, of course. Yeah, you know, so you know, your average person on the street, they wouldn't pay 10 bucks for a whole pig because they'd have no idea what to do with the thing. Exactly. But <laughs> you can go to the 7-Eleven down the street and you can buy a package of Jack Link's smoked bacon and uh, it's sold by the ounce, so you're paying like seven bucks for it, and you know you don't really look at the ounces on it, but that's actually forty-eight dollars a pound is what you're paying. Yeah, for, oh, that's crazy. You know, that little snack on the way home from work that you're buying. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, with a, with a little bit of food literacy, you could make that yourself. Yeah. You a whole side of bacon, um, or you could get a whole side if you bought half a pig, and you you could make that stuff yourself. But and, and it would be better for you. Yeah, it wouldn't have right. all the preservatives. And exactly. Stuff yeah. So, yeah, I think a you know solutions require all hands to participate. I agree. I agree. And it's it's never one answer, right? It's a little bit of everything. Sure. That's usually, what it comes down to. Yeah, I mean the education part, and I'm not trying to play that down by no means. That's absolutely what you have to do. But I just know people. I just know how people are, and you can try to yeah. get people on board with with something 
you know, that seems so obvious and so whatever, they just aren't going to do it. You yeah. know, it's just, it's well, just look, at, look at smoking. Everyone knows smoking is bad for you. The government taxes the crap out of it. People still smoke. I smoke. I know it's bad for me. Well, there you go. <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm an idiot and I know it. And I know, it, look, there's no smoker that knows it's not bad for them. Right. That, but, you know, the, the, the fundamental question should be, why do, do I do you it? have, well, it should be, do you have the, the uh, personal autonomy to decide that for yourself? Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. Yeah, and should, I do. I mean, yeah, I, I, I I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a weird thing. Like, I like smoking, to be honest with you. I like mm -hmm. it. Um, there's something about it's this conversation sort of thing with it. I don't know. There's just something yes. about smoking. Uh, now, I roll my own cigarettes. I've been doing that for okay. 10 years, so I don't smoke as much as probably a right, normal right. smoker. That bought. Not a three-packer. Yeah, I'm not not at all. My God, <laughs> not, not even close. Uh, I can actually smoke one cigarette for like three hours, the same okay. cigarette. Because when you roll right. it yourself, you use a different paper different filter sure. it doesn't it doesn't burn on its own so it's right. more like smoking like an old school pipe on a right rock, rocking chair on a patio you know sure. your grandpa used sure. to do right so it's more like that uh, but either way i i know it's bad for me uh but i still do it i mean that's a that's just people in general we all do a lot of things that are uh yeah. you know we we know just aren't good for us but convenience i mean it just ha for some people it's it's everything in their life i mean i just think about luxury sometimes like sometimes th different thoughts eating organic eating right is a luxury for some people they, for they, sure. don't e they don't even have the time to think about stuff like that like I, like i was saying before some people just have three jobs single parent you know maybe live in a bad neighborhood you know living not even paycheck to paycheck you know worse than that even and just if you're going to try to stop and talk to them about you know, eating organic and supporting farmers. And I mean, they're just going to look at you cross-eyed like, what are you even talking about, bitch? I'm just trying to stay alive over here, you know? So, yeah. and I just know there's a lot of people like that. Um, and I just worry about how to reach them, you know, because it, th right. that's, that's really winning the game because th right. that's the majority of people getting people on your side with common sense is easy. You, you show them one video blackfish or whatever that movie was blackwater all of a sudden everyone hates sea world right it's real easy to get right. uh especially liberals on board with something like that it really it, it's very easy to get them on board with it but you know it's the other people the, the harder people sure. th to hit that that's where i feel that the game can be won is is getting them on board and that's that's what i don't know and again that's why it's almost it has to be something that they don't even know they're doing it has to be something yeah. they just don't even know they're supporting in a weird way. I don't know. Certainly affording to eat well and having the, the mindfulness to do so is uh, a luxury that not everyone has. You yeah. know, I can appreciate that and I can agree with that. Um, I also think it's a, um, you know, a travesty that our government classifies sugar as a food group, essentially. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's crazy. Um, yeah. You know, why, why can someone who is, you know, on food stamps and again, you know, not judging that person for being on it, but why is it that they can go buy soda with that, but they can't go buy lettuce from their neighbor with that? That's a great point. And great point. You know, there, there needs to be, you know, why can't they buy seeds for their own garden with sure. that and just grow it themselves or, you know, buy some chickens. Sure. Um, it, it's the way that the assistance that's being given to these people 
is given in a direction that you know encourages uh, the the problem to continue. That's absolutely um, true, a hundred percent. You know, there, there, there's been uh, you know I'm sure there's been studies done on this that uh, the the types of foods that are consumed by the the lowest income demographics also contribute to the extreme cost of their health care later on in life. I believe it a hundred percent. And you know, it, it's, it's interesting that um, the way government and uh, you know, medicine works here in America, that healthcare and food are two separate topics. When, You're right. You, know, they, they you are what you eat, right? I mean, it's that simple. For sure. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the healthcare that we give to children and you know, young people um, it should be about their food care because that's going to pay dividends down the road. You know, I'm yeah. sure it would be a cost savings to the, the government who's paying for a lot of health care to have healthy people to start with yeah, uh, instead of unhealthy people. You would think that, uh, you know, what, what about getting like farms involved with schools? You know, you're talking about this. You're making some great points. I mean, I completely agree with you on this. Like, you know, maybe getting you know, kids educated from, you know, as a young child, right, learning about that stuff and accepting it, because I see that happening in Europe, you know, cafeterias, and the food they serve children in, in like, when I lived in Spain, dude, the, the stuff is amazing, the meals they get, it's nothing like the, the shit we got served in public school, I mean, I went to a public school, so I didn't go to private school, but, you know, we were getting you know, sure. whatever, a little Low, milk lowest thing. Lowest contract. I mean, right. It was just a, you know, yeah. just, you know, whatever. They're just mass cooking back there, plopping it on a spoon on your plate. And maybe that's a yeah. way to get people on board too. Well, yeah, so I, I um, lived in Japan for seven months, two different times while I was in the military. And an interesting thing they do in their schools there is the children prepare their own lunch in the school cafeterias. That so, is awesome. They're in there, you know, cutting up the vegetables and prepping the lunch and, you know, learning all of those skills. So they're, you know, they're getting two, two birds with one stone. They're, they're learning yeah. us. They're learning a life skill on food prep and then they get to eat it too, which yeah. is their, their school lunch. Um, I think it goes back to just, uh, you know, where our culture is at that we don't want to be inconvenienced with the food that we eat. Sure. You know, with, such with a the, weird thing, right? That's such a yeah. weird the, the very thing that gives us life, we disregard and, and almost disdain that, you know, oh, I've got to spend money on this. Well, yeah, that's, that's what fuels your body and your... Yeah, your <laughs> <laughs> you're right, man. It's so, uh, it's such a funny, um, you're right. Uh, you know, but I will say this, do you, well, maybe, uh, let's see if you agree. Do you feel like the younger generation that's out right now, do you feel that they care more about food? than i don't know some some other generations before because i feel that they do i feel like this whole or maybe it was my generation i'm i was born in 79 so i don't know if you know this whole like farm to table and organic food thing i mean when i first got into restaurants it wasn't really like that it, it mm. you know it was still that didn't matter honestly i didn't right. even heard those terms before like it, it, nobody had even it just, this is the food you ordered a steak and potatoes and nobody's ever asked where it came from. Like what, what the hell? Um, yeah. and it, it just started to change. So where do you think that came from? Do you think it was people's demand? I mean, how do you think that this whole boom happened? Um, well, I think there's a, a lot of things that, that factor into it. Certainly the availability of information now 
Um, the, ah, the prevalence okay. of, of nutritional knowledge could sure. be one side of the environmental side, yeah. you know, it's another big issue. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people in our generation, so I was born in 82, you know, we, we grew up, um, you know, you probably remember dialing a rotary phone when you were a kid. Of course. And then you got your first cell phone and you're like, ah, oh, what is this thing? Yeah. <laughs> That's you know, if, if I wanted to know something when I was a kid, I had to go dig the encyclopedia off the bookshelf. Yeah. Yeah. Read, read Britannica up on it. Totally. Um, totally. And, you know, so it, there's a lot more information available now. Um, sure. And I think we're also seeing the effects of, um, you know, what a lot of decisions, um, you know, have had on the environment and are having. Um, plus millennials, I think have had more disposable income. Um, you know, even though, you know, the, the, the struggling millennial is kind of a stereotype out there. Sure. Um, I think, I think we have more disposable income than previous generations. And so we can spend it on things that we care about. Um, but you know, on the other side of that, there's, there, there's a lot that don't care at all. You know, I think sure. it, it's a, it's a smaller percentage that care about these things than you would think, but it is a significant percentage. It's, it's just nothing I saw as a kid, right? I don't remember people talking about organic and farm to It was just food. You just ate right. food. It was, you know, well, if, you, if you think about it, you know, our parents' generation, they, they knew their grandparents who were the farmers. That's true. And My dad grew so up on a farm in Missouri. Yeah. So there was still news. that, there was still that connection back of, you know, when they're, when they're at the store looking at food, like, Oh yeah, uncle James, he's a farmer. Sure. So yeah. But for us, that connection had been severed. Yeah. You know, I think I, when I was a kid, I can remember like my great uncle, um, you know, he had a couple chickens and, you know, sure. did some eggs and, but that was about the extent of the farm connection I had as a kid. There was that, that connection back to, you know, a, a farming generation, kind of the, the pre-World War II post-depression generation. Sure. Um, that was, that connection was lost somewhere around the 80s to 90s, kids that were born in there. And, you know, now, you know, 30 years later, we're like, hey, this stuff actually kind of matters and, you know, starting to dig into it. Yeah, that's a good point. My grandfather used to you know, garden at his house, you know, after they sold their big farm, right. When they were whatever he had his little garden. I remember I'd always go over, I pulled fresh carrots out and this was in Florida. So it just come out of the sand. I always thought that was unusual. Um, but it, you know, I always thought it was odd that my dad never did that because he grew up on a farm, but I guess just a different generation. Right. So my grandfather, even, you know, he grew up, grows up on a farm, gets another farm going, but doesn't keep it his whole life right? Decides I'm right. going to sell this and, and do something else. Um, but still gardens a little bit in the backyard for him personally and my grandmother, but my father just never, and none of my uncles or, or aunts did, did any of that either. It just seemed like, you know, move on to the next thing. But like you said, it's almost like it skipped a generation. Now yeah. this, this next generation, like you said, is saying, wait a second, th this can work for me. You know, what do you think about urban farming? like gardening and that sort of thing that people do? I mean, I think it's great. I think anything that anybody can do to secure their own food source is a good idea. Yeah. And, you know, our, our, our grandparents, um, you know, mine were born in the, uh, the thirties, the twenties and thirties, yeah. you know, their parents went through the depression and no kidding. the dust bowl and all that. Uh, and then, you know, our grandparents grew up, uh, during World War II when there was food rationing. Yep. Yeah. They, I remember my, uh, 
great grandmother showing me the the ration booklets that they had in World War II. Yeah. You know, oh, and, really? You know, people today are are whining about food shortages. Totally. Back then, you had to give them a little stamp to get some sugar. Yeah, you were, you were given your ration booklet, and so they had that experience in their mind of, hey, it's it's a good idea for me to have a garden. You know, to have some carrots and you know. Uh, potatoes and you know things around because I might not be able to buy those or afford them. Uh, that was lost on our parents' generation because they grew up in the 50s, 60s, 70s when you know times were were much better. Sure. Um, and that brings us right back to today. And isn't history repeating itself? That uh, you know a lot of a lot of people are you know not uh, I would say anywhere close to what the Depression generation went through. But we're now seeing hey these shelves are kind of empty right now. And, you know, the, the news is talking about meat shortages and, um, you know, everyone's out stocking up on stuff. So I better do so, you know, do so too. And, you know, we're seeing a little bit of a revival of the self-sufficiency, you know, at least have a little bit of food in the house and, yeah, you know, have, have more than two meals worth of food in the fridge um, because, <laughs> you know, Uber, Uber Eats might not bring me something tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's hilarious. But that's true, right? Like that's the, Jordan, what do you think about, uh, you know, God, I hope this isn't a, a hard topic to talk about with you, but we'll sort of wind down with this because um, this might bring a whole whatever of questions, but <laughs> veganism, what do you think uh -huh. about veganism? Like when sure. people say, you know, we shouldn't be killing animals and this and that. And I mean, how do you feel about that as a farmer? Um, so we do farm tours as, as part of being a open to the public farm and we have vegans come out to them. Um, you know, I've also have a fair amount of vegans populating my YouTube channel as well. So I've pretty, pretty regular correspondence with them. Um, for me, I always approach it from a position of respect with two questions that I ask them. Uh, one, are you eating this way for, um, dietary reasons or are you eating this way for moral reasons? And depending on their answer to that question will be the, the direction that I take the conversation. Sure. Um, you know, if someone's eating that way for dietary reasons, Hey, good for you, man. Glad sure. you're pay, paying attention to, you know, your body and what works best for your food. And, you know, some people have allergies to meat. Now there's this you know, tick going around that makes you allergic to red meat. And, oh, really? Uh, oh, Jesus Christ. I hope yeah. you get that. <laughs> yeah. I hope a bit because that would not be a good day. <laughs> no. um, so, you know, the, the dietary one usually wraps up pretty quickly, yeah. but if it's somebody who, who is a vegan for moral reasons, well, I think that's where we can have a very healthy discussion about what is the most moral way to be in, excuse me, uh, what is the most moral way to be a responsible eater? Yeah. Um, and, and unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation out there. Um, there's a lot of valid points that the vegan community makes, but there's also a lot of uh, faulty information that they are basing their decisions on. And so, you know, one example I like to point out is, you know, if you're a vegan for a moral reason, it's because you don't want to have animals killed. You sure. don't want to see animals being killed. Um, not understanding that there is no way around an animal being killed for you to eat. And it was actually a study done in Australia um, a while ago where they compared the number of mammal deaths that occurred on the farm to produce 100 kilograms of human edible protein. 
So, you know, as, as humans, we can't eat grass and turn it into protein like yeah. a cow can. <laughs> yeah. we, do not have, we do not have that rumen that can convert the cellulose material into, into protein, into amino acids. Um, so for the most part, we either have to eat meat or we have to eat very uh, proteinaceous uh, plants or, or beans. And those do not occur naturally. They have to be cultivated as well. So the study compared, you know, we, we want to produce 100 kilograms of human edible protein. We're going to look at a grass-fed herbivore model, and then we're going to look at a bean-based model. And we're going to compare just mammal deaths. So this isn't insects, amphibians, everything, just, just mammal deaths. To produce 100 kilograms of um, you know, grass-fed herbivores, that'd be lamb, goat, or beef, I think this was done with beef, but it was, uh, I think, 2.4 mammal deaths occurred. Do you want to take a guess at how many mammal deaths occurred for the 100 kilograms of plant-based protein? Oh, gosh, I have no idea. 100. Okay. It's 254. Holy cow. So <laughs> what, a, I mean, how does that even happen? Um, it's mice, voles, rabbits, small animals that are cut up by the tillage equipment. So you, you know you're running these oh, huge machines over the ground. Oh, I see. You know you have to till the ground, then you have to cultivate it, then you have to plant it, then you have to tend those crops several times throughout the year, spray them, um, and you know, and then you have to harvest them, and then you know, nursery crop them in the fall. So you have tractors and heavy equipment running over that field, you know, six to ten times. Um, in the year, as opposed to that herbivore model, where it's just the herbivores doing their thing on the perennial pasture, and you know the farmer walking around moving them. So if we are going to make our decisions based on how many sentient lives are taken in order for us to live, the most ethical meat we could ever possibly eat is herbivore meat. It's I have not never, I've never heard that argument ever and i've talked so much with about this this uh you know this uh subject i've never heard that argument before but absolutely makes total sense and on top of that the machinery you've got to run right so now you're talking whatever gas and this and that yeah. to the environment yeah, and, you the, know, equipment you've got to buy and god that's the, uh, uh, the the vegan way of eating is extremely petroleum heavy that's crazy <laughs> you are eating converted petroleum yeah. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of discussion to be had on the, the moral landscape of sure. vegan eating. Sure. That all, you know, but that's a, a good point. argument. I, I feel like some vegans would hear that and go, oh, okay. For sure. I, I didn't know that. Like, cause I didn't know that. Like, you know, so I'm sure vegans have, cause in your mind you think, how could, how could we kill more animals by eating vegetables? If I'm instead right. of killing this animal, it, you don't think about right. all the back end things that, that, that go with it. All, all as it did is it moved the killing one step further away from you. I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. You, you around the corner, see. right? It's around the corner yeah. instead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You you didn't have to see the the you know mercy for animals video of a horrible capo farm. And you know, when it comes to discussing capo operations, I'm there with the vegans saying, Hey, this is a horrible production model. Sure. These animals are being treated horribly. It's environmentally, uh, you know, uh, very damaging. 
Um, it's degrading to the farmers and people who are working there. Absolutely. We'll agree all day on that. Yeah. But to take the argument to the extreme of, uh, well, that means we shouldn't eat any animals at all. Totally. Wait a minute. Wait, yeah, whoa, now, whoa, now, whoa, 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 yeah. We, we have now thrown the baby out with the bathwater. What sure. really needs to change is our production model, not the entire food group of what we eat, because there is no way that life can happen without death. Something has to die for something to live. And it's, you know, animal life is part of the food chain. And so I think our our moral responsibility as eaters is to be the most conscientious and uh, honoring of those species as we can. And, you know, I think it's no comparison um, to, you know, have 2.5 animal mammal deaths uh, compared to 254. And, and the way that those animals would die as sure. opposed to the way the other animals are dying, right? They're, they're getting yeah. eaten up in the thing or whatever. The other animals you're going to kill f to eat. Hopefully it's getting done in a proper way that, that animal doesn't suffer. And it's, you know, yeah. what, whatever. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Gosh, I, I, gosh, I mean, if you heard that argument before, so good. Yeah. If, if you've ever seen a fawn get sucked up into harvesting equipment, that oh. is a horrible, that's a horrible sight. I, I can't even imagine, man. You know, I'm such a, I, I'm like most Americans. I, shit. I'm like most human beings in the sense that I love meat and I love eating it, but I don't have the cojones to actually kill the animal myself and prep it and break it down. And I, I could take, you know, having cooked in restaurants for a long time, I, I don't mind getting the meat and breaking it down, whatever, from a certain set, but there's no way I'm going to be able to kill the animal. I just don't have it in me, you know? Right. But at the same time, I want to eat meat. You know, it's such a weird right. dichotomy. Well, and, and, you know, we are evolved to eat meat. Yes. You know, that's, I, what, yeah. that's what gave us the brain that we have. Um, that's the reason that we are human was, you know, an, an evolved trait to eat meat. Um, so it, it's counter to everything in our evolutionary ancestry. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean that we need to be just running around killing everything. I, know, exactly. Yes. Um, yes. There certainly needs to be a healthy discussion about the ethics involved in this process. And, you know, how do we how do we honor the uh, environment and the animals that are in it? You know, I'm all about that. Yeah. But to make the argument that you shouldn't even eat roadkill, <laughs> that if you know if you hit a hit a deer you know, out here in the country, it's a pretty common thing. For, yeah, here in Texas too, for sure, absolutely. Yeah. You know, so are are you making the argument as a hypothetical vegan that if I hit a deer in the head in front of my house, I couldn't eat that? You know how how wasteful of nature's bounty to not. Um, you know, to not eat what the, the surplus is. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, honestly, um, yes, absolutely. Look, I, I'm with you in the sense that like, I see where they're coming from, right? I see the compassion that they want to have. They, they don't want these sure. animals to, to suffer and die. And I get it. I'm, I don't want animals to suffer and die either. Uh, but there's also the circle of life and I get that. And yeah, you no, know, I, I see nothing wrong with it as long as it's done of, of the proper way. Right. When I see these factory farming documentaries and you just see these horrific images and these horrific things happening. And um, of course, that turns people off and makes you, you know, sure. Once I saw a video about how hot dogs got made, my God, I never <laughs> wanted to eat a fucking hot dog yeah. ever again in my life, you know. But, you know, if you think about it, what would build a more respectful and conscientious eater 
than an eater who has to kill what they eat. I agree. A hundred percent. Yes. If, and, and, you know, I think maybe that's why, um, like this hog depopulation that's going on, you know, just infuriates me so much is because I know what it takes for me to grow a pig here on my farm, you know, sure. on the, the cold winter days and on the caring for the animals and, you know, the, the sheer amount of time and investment that's put into them to just see it thrown away like that. Um, that's the moral travesty. Is, I is agree. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it, it's, I, I think there would be a lot of good achieved for our society and culture if they actually had to get their hands dirty in the food that they produced and they had to kill what they eat. You know, not all the time, but, sure. um, you know, it's, you know, I think there is a, um, you know, we'll, we'll just say a, a spiritual experience when you kill. Yeah. I know that's something that a lot of people don't want to hear or maybe think is, you know, a, a barbarian thing to say, but, you know, I've killed a lot of animals, obviously, um, you know, both through farming and also through hunting. Through yeah, hunting, it may, yeah. It may surprise, you know, some of your listeners to, uh, to hear this, but, um, you know, I shoot a lot of deer off of our farm. Um, I probably eat more venison meat off of my farm than I do domestic animals you know, that, that we grow here of, you know, chickens, pork, and beef. <laughs> sure. Um, to me, that, that is the most ethical meat is, is wild. And I know not everyone can do that, but for me, I certainly can. Sure. And, and, um, you know, that's, that's a very sustainable type of meat that, you know, they're eating the grass that, that we are managing and producing as well. Um, and it helps control their population. It's wild game, but certainly, going through the the effort of hunting that animal um you know the experience of taking its life and then having to you know dress it and cut it up yeah you would never want to waste any of that sure um, and i think that's that's an experience that a lot more um eaters would i think benefit from from having i agree um it would be scary uh, but absolutely um yes of course of course you know yeah Absolutely. I don't, uh, doesn't Joe Rogan say that he won't eat any meat that he doesn't kill? And you know, right now that's why he kills I think a you're. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I, I, honestly, if we could all do that, it would be great. Um, I just think about myself and other people. Like, you know, I think my brother, for instance. Like, I can't imagine him. You know, <laughs> bow and arrow and right. some deer in a field uh, and having to eat. He would be like, "I'm starving." You know, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do now. Yeah. I think the deep question of it is that um, a, a reason a lot of us don't like killing is it does make you confront your own mortality. You know, that someday, that's, that's a good point. You know, someday you will be that dead carcass on the ground. Sure. Yeah. Sure. That's yeah. a good point. Well, yeah. Like, like, yeah. like it or not, we have all these ways of dressing it up and putting us in fancy boxes and, and all that. But someday we will just be a dead piece of meat on the ground too. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, if you're having to kill your own food to eat it, it kind of makes you realize life thing's pretty fragile here. Um, you know, I think it gives you a much deeper appreciation of it, but it does bring you face to face with with death. And um, our, our culture is especially uh, repulsed by death. Um, I think you hit the nail on the on the head with that one, man. I think that's a really big reason, actually, why people don't want to get involved with something like that they don't want to be confronted with that uh you're yeah. right 
you're right. That that is a big reason. That's probably the reason why I don't want to do it. You know, I don't want to see the life leave that animal's eyes. Even right. though, again, I eat meat. Uh, it's not that I have a problem with animals getting killed. I just don't want to do it. You know, sure. I'm, I'm yeah. you, you know, you go do it. You know, you, 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 this right. is what you do. You have no problem yeah. with that. Um, and I do. And I, and I've gone hunting with people lots of times. I've just never been able to follow through. I'm that guy that's like, oh, this yeah. not happening. Well, the, I can't do it. Yeah. The kind of the chain is the, the hunter uh, kills his own animals. The, uh, the average eater has someone else kill their animals and the vegan has even someone else kill their animals. <laughs> oh, shit. It's so true. Um, gosh, this whole vegan thing you brought up is such a new angle that I had never looked at before. You know, this gives me a whole new angle to look at veganism, uh, to be honest with you. I, I mean, you know, just, just to be completely transparent, you know, with everybody, I was considering going vegan. Um, mm. I don't know why. I just really, I guess, the thought of animals dying. And I just thought, well, if I can still get my nutrition, what would be the point? But, um, you know, hearing things like you're saying, but also that, uh, that I've heard before of like, you know, we, we'd have to grow way more crops and it would actually require more land than if we all went vegan. Like it just wouldn't make sense, you know, that, that we right. could really do that. Um, plus I just I love think, meat. I'd love the taste of meat. Like <laughs> I think the appeal of veganism is it's the silver bullet that we all are looking for. You know, we yeah, want, that's one, it. we want one thing that solves everything. Sure. Well, if sure. everyone just ate vegan, there'd be no problems in the world and there'd be no war. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, probably not. Yeah. It's not going to solve every problem. Now for all. someone someone with um you know certain health conditions and, and um you know physical needs then sure it can solve their problems uh for a lot of people i think it just solves the problem of disciplined eating yeah you know, i think a lot of people who feel better after switching to a vegan lifestyle is yeah they finally started paying attention to what they were eating you know and, and that's a good point rolling, uh, you know actually controlling it and cutting down on sugar and that's um, a good point you know, um, I ate keto uh, several years ago to help control some health stuff I had going on. And yeah, I felt fantastic eating that way. Um, now I was eating a lot of meat doing that. Sure. Uh, and it worked until it didn't anymore. Yeah. And yeah. you know, had to bring some carbs back into the life. Sure. Um, it's different for everybody, right? Is that the deal? Yeah. I mean, everybody's body is different and you know, it's, I guess it's really more just a balance, right? It's not about the carnivore diet. And it's not about the vegan diet. It's just a good balance, right, of, of a well, little you, bit of everything. You know, what's the thread that runs through all of them? You know, it, it's discipline. No, it's good, point. Not, good point. It's not eating all the donuts, you know, yeah. or, or stuffing your face <laughs> with all the junk food. Yeah. It's actually having some type of methodology to what you're eating when you're eating it and being disciplined about it. And, you know, that is... Um, you know, as, as a guy, uh, Jocko Willink, I don't know if you heard him, yeah. one of his, his things he says is discipline equals freedom. You know, if you want health freedom, be disciplined with what you're eating. If you want financial freedom, be disciplined with your money. Um, it's a good point. If you want career freedom, be disciplined with your education, those type of things. And, yeah. um, I, I think that's what a lot of people are finally experiencing when they try one of these uh, you know, W O E's, sure. um, is they are 
for the first time in, in that area of their life, implementing some level of discipline and lo and behold, it yields some results. Of course, that, that makes absolutely the most sense. So then they have this false sense that, oh, it was because I chose to only eat vegetables. It's like, no, it's because you chose to portion control and, and you picked, you know, good this and good that and whatever. That makes absolute sense. It's because you were disciplined. Yeah, that, that makes absolute sense. That sounds like that sounds like how they sort of adjusted the the stats I saw in that Game Changers documentary, where it kind of just didn't make sense a lot of it, you know, afterwards. It seemed like they were trying to fudge some of the statistics and stuff to make it seem like veganism was the way to go and change the world and you know, right. we don't need to eat uh animals anymore because it's so much more nutritious. But like you said, it's really just people they were eating junk food before and all of a sudden they're eating well. Yeah. Of course they're going to change. Of course they're going to change. You, you, but you could have put in a little bit of meat in their diet and then still they would have done well because they're controlling, right. What they're, what they're eating. Sure. Not, well, so. and you, you can look at the other side, people who have gone full carnivore and lost 150 pounds and yeah. look amazing. And you know, to me, what I'm seeing is disciplined eating is yeah. what it is and yeah. probably eating to what your body type is and what your metabolic needs are and your your lifestyle um you know for me um why keto did not work in a long-term format is we are extremely physically active on the farm you know, we walk 17 to 20 miles a day have three Holy or four hours shit. of yeah you know, three to four hours of cardio level heartbeat per day you know out in the 100 degree heat you know sweating like crazy all the time totally. and you know uh, eventually what got me was electrolyte imbalance. You know, it's just impossible to keep your electrolytes perfect um, because when you are eating keto, you have to monitor your electrolytes and have it dialed in. And uh, that just did not happen for me. And I had electrolyte imbalance and had one of the s- scariest kind of seizures that I've ever had in my life. And I was like, that's it. You know, the, the, the glucose <laughs> is coming back. Yeah. Um, oh, Jesus. Of course. Oh, wow because that doesn't work for me. Now, does that mean I'm, I'm running out and eating a box of donuts every day? No, it, it doesn't mean that at all. Uh, but, you know, I eat nuts. You know, I eat walnuts again and have some fruit and all these things that were taboo when I was on the, the keto protocol. Um, so you're not on I, any particular diet right now. You just eat, you know. Um, so I eat very little processed food. Um, you know, I pretty much have no bread. You know, I had uh, for the first time this year i had a pizza last week oh um, really yeah because we me and one of the one of the staff here we did 100 days of very strict eating um as kind of a, a post new year's thing and so that wrapped up and i was like i haven't had a pizza in a long time i'm gonna have one of those and it was surprising <laughs> it was surprising to me how um tasteless it was like i, I just interesting had lost the the taste for it so i probably won't have another for a long time but yeah overall that's that is kind of my gig right now that i'm not um counting macros towards anything but i hardly eat any processed food it's going to be meats eggs nuts um the only thing i indulge in are these little things called aussie bites you get them at costco it's like this little pressed seed kind of cake thing and i'm sure they're not good but (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well you got to have a little a little something something in life you know uh yes yeah, right can't be all misery you know <laughs> no no of course uh like you said if you discipline yourself healthy wise you're allowed to have those little cheats um sure. you know here and there it allows you to have it. but if your life becomes 
the cheats and you're only eating good every once in a while, that's the complete opposite, right? It just needs, it really needs to be the opposite of that. Uh, yeah. And I think, I think people want to eat well. I think that's generally the idea. I think people do want to eat well and be well. And the idea of it sounds wonderful. It's just more, do they have the time in their life? Are they educated enough to know where to even start? You know, my big thing when, when people tell me they don't like to cook at home, I'm a big advocate to get people to cook at home. And I, and I always try to get, uh, you know, get people to do that. That's, that's something I always do. And the first thing I tell people is to set up your kitchen in a way that you can cook, you know, cause right. a lot of times people have their kitchen set up in a completely, you know, wrong way. The, the mise en place, right. Where I come from, from restaurants, you've got to have things set up so you can cook easily. And if you can yep. cook easily, you'll cook more often. So yeah. that's why I tell people move your kitchen around, move things around to where it's actually convenient for you to cook and get everything together where you're not having to reach over here, reach over there, get everything. And I promise you, you will cook more. And sure enough, that's what happens. People cook more because it's easier, right. To, to cook. So yeah. I think that's where it comes down to. Like you've been pushing education a lot. Um, and I think that is a big thing to get, you know, people more educated and to know where to go and what to do. And yeah. Know. Well, I think you remember the, uh, the ads that Staples was running a couple of years ago with the easy button. Yeah. The, the easy button that you can push. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, you know, the reason I think that ad was so successful and people remember it is because that's what we are always seeking is the easy button. Yes. And so often what we actually need is the hard path. That's you know, that, true. Uh, you know, if you, if you want to eat well, it's going to be the hard path. If you want to be physically fit, it's going to be the hard path. If you want to be mentally um, you know, resilient and tough, that's the hard path. Nothing, <clears throat> nothing in life, you know, in, in my experience, nothing in life worth having comes easy. I Everything agree. Is, everything's going to be hard. I agree. And, um, you know, if, if we just embrace that concept of the hard path and, um, you know, just accept that as part of life, that the things worth having are going to be very hard, then um, it seems like it's not that hard anymore. You know, if, if your mental mindset is, hey, this is going to be tough. All right, let's get to it. Sure. Well, you sort of look forward. You, you sort of embrace that, actually. Your, your, sure. your, your body or mind might even need it. You know, you need to, that pressure or that push to even make it worthwhile for you, because otherwise you may not even do it. Um, yeah, that's a that's a good that's a good point. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, look, Jordan, what um, anything else? This is what I want to end on. Uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for taking all the time to talk talk to me about all this stuff, man. It's been absolutely wonderful and insightful, and um, I've learned a lot, to be honest with you, by speaking to you. Um, but I want to end on. I don't know. We briefly touched on it, but what I just want people to support, you know, farmers and farms and not just that, but the lifestyle that comes behind it and how we can change the way we eat. So besides, you know, I guess just what, what would be the best absolute way for, for again, myself and anybody else to support this? Like what, what can we do? Is it just, is buying organic food, is that helping? Do we need to go to farmer's markets? Is going to Sprouts helping? Is, you know, what, what yeah, what, what can we do just as regular people to, to help this? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the first thing would be to mentally take responsibility for your own actions. That, you know, nothing, uh, nothing is going to be handed to you. You need to take responsibility for it yourself. And that can 
be manifested in um, shorten the chain. You know, if, if you live in the countryside and you can buy directly from the farmer, um, then try to go buy directly from them. If you live in the city and the closest thing you can find is the farmer's market or like a CSA type distributor and they are connected directly to the farm, then buy from them. Um, yeah, wherever you're at, try to knock some links off that chain. And you know, really what will bring the most change at the, the farming level is capital right now and revenue. Um, you know, we can do a lot more of what we're doing if the market is there for it and the money is there to do it. And it's very easy for eaters to participate in that just by buying from us. You know, I uh, mentioned earlier how you know, commodity farmers getting uh, you know, 13, 17 cents on the dollar or something like that. You know, we're getting 100 because we are the retailer. Now yeah. we, have to, we have to pay other businesses to do things with the product, but we have the ability to set the price where it needs to be to make sure that they're getting paid and that, that we're getting paid. Um, and you know, it's the community of eaters that we have that allows us to do that. And the more of them there are, the more farms will catch on to this. And you know, I saw an article the other day that um, I found so ironic. It was written by a major pig industry publication and it was kind of their thoughts and initial guidance on putting pigs on pasture. And you know, that's what, Guys like me have been running around for 20 years saying, hey, we don't need these huge hog houses. Pigs are perfectly happy in their natural environment of pasture and edge, you know, forest edge uh, environments. That's what their, their natural habitat is. And even now the industry is like, all right, maybe you need to take the pigs out of the house and put them on the pasture for right now to try to deal with this. Here's kind of what you got to do and, and kind of laying it out. And um, a lot of farmers, I would say, are waking up to this. You know, friends of mine who have commodity farms, no one's happy right now. Um, and I, I think the winds of change are beginning to blow. Yeah. Um, you know, as you saw in the video I did with uh, the congressman there, uh, a big legislative push is, is coming up right now to pass the Prime Act, which would allow this custom uh, facilities to process by the piece for farmers. That's not going to be a silver bullet. You know, there, there is no silver bullet for this, but it is a good step in the right direction to solve one of the bottleneck issues that's going on right now. There'll be another bottleneck after that, but we'll deal with that when we get there. So shorten sure. the chain and call your, call your politicians and, uh, and let them know what you think. So like, just real quick. So if I buy, you know, the organic steak at, you know, like I said, H-E-B or Kroger or whatever, Central Market, it, it's not really helping a local farm, right? Odds are, odds are that, you know, HEB is not getting the meat from local places here. I mean, how does that even work? Like if I buy a piece of meat at um, Walmart, or are they it's all the same place? So if you are buying something that has an organic sticker on it, you more than likely are not helping a local farm. Um, it is going to be a farm somewhere else, you know, especially if it's produce, it's going to be California. It's probably a big um, farm, right? So it's probably oh, a they're huge. Play, they're, yes. they're huge. They're they're sending meat all over the place, and it it could yeah. be even coming from the same farm, right? Organic and non-organic. Uh, well, stuff. it could be it could be the same parent company, but it's going to be different locations because okay. they have acreage that's certified organic and different procedures they have to follow. Ah, gotcha. But you are at this point, if you buy certified organic, you are still participating in a commodity system. It's just a different commodity. 
Got um, it. It's a different set of protocols. Now, it's funny that you mentioned HEB because I uh, was talking with a dude down there um, in San Antonio who was setting up a grass-fed beef company that will be supplying HEB with beef. Really? So, I love HEB, man. Like, I, I love HEB. So many people around here love HEB. Like, yeah. My uh, wife grew up working at HEB. So oh, know. really? Like, she'll yeah. tell you it's such an amazing grocery store. Like, really, right. it's you, you were talking about service earlier. Like, that's a big thing, right, for you. That's why I love going to the HEB I go to. It's the service. It's really yeah. that the people there are amazing. They answer every question. Plus, I just feel like the products I am buying, you know, the, the vegetables and the fruits are good. Now, I do buy from farmers. I buy these, like, cases that I get delivered, you know, and it just right. ran, they just randomly throw stuff in and I take it. Uh, but I also still buy at HEB. I mean, I, I do. Yeah. I, I, I well, buy it's, you know, grocery stores are not the enemy. They're not yeah. the problem. They sell what people buy. Yeah. So if uh, if a bunch of people went into HEB and said, hey, we really would like pastured chicken from, um, so like one in Texas would be Cobb Creek Farm. We want their pastured chicken. And if enough people said that, HEB might think, huh, might be worth going to talk to those guys. You know, uh, and so what, you know, the, the store, the stores and the distribution models and everything have in place is a scale of efficiency that is a modern marvel. Yeah. And we don't need to throw that out. Sure. But we do need to have enough demand from the consumer and the eaters that it causes those companies to say, hey, it's worth having this product on our shelves now because people will actually buy it. Yeah. And if something, if something will sell, they will stock it. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, look, now more than ever, um, people are asking, like you said, for farm food. Yeah, where's the nearest farm? And how do I go get this? And how, I mean, it's been on the forefront of conversation more than it's ever been, you know. Um, so in a way, there's already a victory there. You know, like you said, sure. you know, maybe 50 percent of people will stick with it and, and not. And let's just hope that it's that or more. Uh, moving forward, you know, and then there's already a small yeah. victory there because it is on the forefront publicity. of people's mind. Yeah, publicity. Exactly. Yeah. It's just about getting people to know about it. Because if they don't know right. about it or know about the fight, then how do they even know to get involved or do anything, right? They don't, just don't even yeah. know. I, I have people stop by here at our farm store all the time who say, we never knew you were here. And they, totally. live, like two, they live two miles away. Like, well, <laughs> We've been here for 11 years. Um, you know, we have we have public events, and you know we're doing everything we can. But I guess yeah. you can't do So yeah, um, it happens. I think this is a, an amazing opportunity for the local food movement. Um, and, you know, it's a real revival of the the farm to table you know movement, and um, I hope it it's something that has lasting impact and that frankly as farmers we are better prepared to um um you know facilitate this time than than last time yeah yeah that's awesome well look jordan again man thank you so much for for taking the time um just thank you for everything that you do you know as being a farmer and providing that sort of lifestyle and um you know educating people on it getting more people behind it getting people to do it i mean this it's really is going to make a difference man and i just commend you and much respect for what you do um you know i hardly break a sweat during the day so i just feel horrible talking to you like <laughs> oh my god dude like it, it's it's almost embarrassing uh now granted when i worked in restaurants and even when i ran my own food truck for five years i worked hard you know i know what hard right. work is coming from the restaurant industry for sure uh 
but it just lately it just hasn't been that way so i do feel uh, i've put on a little corn belly you know and i feel bad talking to all these people that are just working their ass off and sweating and yeah, i need to, my dad would be uh, rest in peace my dad would be slapping me upside the head right now like you need to get to work patrick do something you know yeah, right. I get that blood. So, uh, you know, thank you, man, just for everything that you're doing out there and, and everything you're providing for. Um, if I lived close, I would 100% be up there buying all that stuff behind you um, for sure. So uh, maybe one day we'll get to me in person. But again, man, if you ever come to Texas, of course, um, you, you know what to do. Uh, hit me up here for sure. sure. Um, but again, man, just thank you so much for, for everything you're doing and for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate you having me on. All right. I really hope you enjoyed that podcast as much as I did. If you have any questions for me, please feel free to email the podcast at patrick at texasrealfood.com. Um, and don't forget, you can check us out on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, you know, all the different places you can get podcasts. You'll, you'll find us on there. Or you can just go to our website, go to the thelonestarplate.com. And uh, you can find everything you need there, all the episodes. Um, and you can check us out on YouTube if you want to watch it. You know, we video these, now, you know, on a little webcam here and do the Zoom stuff. And, um, you know, so if you feel like doing it that way, go to the Texas Real Food YouTube channel and you can find it there. Uh, make sure to follow uh, Texas Real Food as well on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe. Um, and if you, you know, are so inclined, please leave us a review anywhere you can. Um, you know, follow us on Spotify or leave a review on Apple podcast. Uh, that would really help us out, uh, as well. So if you support, you know, what we're trying to do here. So thanks again for listening. Really do appreciate it. Um, without you guys, we you know, what's the point of doing this? Um, so if you have any suggestions on how we can make the show better, please let us know. All right. Thanks again. Be safe out there. Wash your hands.